I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, we're living in an age of identity, and it's bringing the need to rethink old approaches. People are discovering not their true selves, but that they can, in fact, have multiple selves, different ways of being themselves with different kinds of people. Terms like fluidity and intersectionality speak to this moment of people exploring who they are across and within different contexts. And what this means is that people no longer have to feel hemmed in by labels of somebody else's doing. They're free to choose from a wide variety of selves, each building on the other or creating a range of self-expression. Now, while this allows people to speak about who they are and how they see themselves in multiple ways, it does create challenges for trying to reach those people through traditional business and marketing methods. So our guest today is exploring these new rules for a new marketing world with this variety of new selves. From his early beginnings doing a PhD in social psychology from Adams Alma Mater, Brandeis University, Michael Solomon has spent a long career looking at how to reach people through marketing. He has worked with some of the biggest brands, brands you're all familiar with, to try to create connections with customers. And in his new book, The New Chameleons, How to Connect with Consumers Who Defy Categorization, Michael breaks down how traditional marketing is based on the assumption of boundaries such as us and them, producers versus consumers, work and play, and even traditional gendered categories. And in our conversation, he helps us to see how those boundaries are blurring. People identify with members of multiple subcultures. It's no longer just the individual heading out for a purchase. They're checking with their friends and social media sites and doing research before even starting to buy anything. It's as much about social validation as it is satisfaction from the purchase. In order to try to truly understand and meet people where they are, Michael walks us through how we need to update old marketing tropes for the 21st century and embrace chameleon consumers. Hope you enjoy it. That's a funny story too. So I, I teach in sociology. I teach in our user experience graduate program. Okay. In which we have some marketing professors who also teach. Okay. So I am familiar with these people. I, I have, I, I have learned how to speak their language somewhat, but I teach, I, I'm actually in the business school and in the arts and sciences. School. Yeah. yeah right. which, which again is Bentley is one of the only places I can think of that would let me do that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a great great program. I know I know a few people in there, and um, oh, do you? Uh, and I went I went to Brandeis actually. Uh, oh, you okay. did. Many, many so did I. Who did? I had Adam. Uh, I did. Yeah. You went to Brandeis. Did my PhD there? Graduated yeah. about thirty years uh, after me. Then. Probably. Where, what year did you graduate? Uh, twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. Yeah, you got a PhD there. Yeah, PhD in anthropology. Oh, oh, how about that? Oh, okay, I know, right? No, I just I know, right? I was the, I hate to tell you, class of '77. <laughs> uh, I think the campus still looks the same, though. 
pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, how about that? And um, you, I'll bet you, do you, you know, Grant McCracken. Yep. Yep. No, Grant. Yeah, I figured you figured you would. Um, he's. I, I saw him in your footnotes. So. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've known Grant for a long time. Long. I haven't seen him in a long time, but. Um, He's doing his his culture camp stuff right now. I saw that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It must have worked because he's doing it again. <laughs> I, I know, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, good, good for him. He's, um, yeah, he cashed out early on in the in his career. <laughs> the academic move. Yeah, he's like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually. I mean, that, that's that. an interesting question that we should we should we can talk about. Not Grant, but um, we could talk about Grant, I guess. But just but just this idea, like we uh, right before you hopped on too, Gary and I were kind of ruminating on this idea of the the academic versus applied work and, and how you are blending those pieces and how Gary does that as well. And I I taught first. I then I just kind of jumped ship and now I, I'm just doing the industry side work. But I, but education is always a huge passion of, of mine. I'm not going to like drop it, you know. Right, um, it's right. a bit about career opportunity on one level. So um, just to give a real a real thing to say. Um, we are just, we'll just kind of roll into recording Then Gary and I will do an intro and outro later. So we don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. And then okay. this is not live. So if you want to, we want to say anything over again right. or whatever, that's totally fine. Um, sure. we'll just say mark down. Okay. I'll, I'll change that. But, um, so just go with the flow feel, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, we're casual podcasters, but, um, as you, as we warned you, we're real social scientists. So, um, you know, we love, we love the human side of the equation. And so that's, I think why your book was so super interesting and your work in general of how do we bring that human equation into marketing, right. And thinking about that for branding and other pieces. Um, so maybe, I mean, we can, we can, and you're welcome to ask us questions back to, if you'd like, or whatever, we can be as much of a conversation as is, is helpful for you. Um, okay. And then, uh, so yeah, kind of one of the pieces that we were saying when, when we hopped on was this, this idea around the applied versus academic setting. And, and um, I'll let Gary kind of frame the question as he was saying it, but it's this interesting mix that sometimes the academic world, or academic culture doesn't always lend itself to uh, the business world or the applied setting. And it's interesting because, you know, if you're in marketing or even in, in a business school or user experience program, uh, that seems like those, those lines get blurred even further almost because it's, you know, premised on teaching about going out into the world and doing marketing or branding right. or something. So, um, we, we'd love to kind of get your rumination on this idea in, in terms of how, on one level, could we both help students, but even your own path too, of how you decide and how you navigate this, this world. Cause you're both a professor, you teach as well as you write textbooks, as well as, you know, popular press or trade books, however you want to define them, um, for, for multiple kinds of audiences. And so how has, you know, you thought about this in your own path and that you want to walk this line between educational, academic and industry consulting, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are we talking? Are we doing yeah. that now? Or? Yeah. Oh, so now. We're, I wasn't sure if we'd actually start. Right. Yeah. Or would you like to? I mean, we can, we can, we can do a pregame if you want, but um, uh, yeah. No, 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 that, 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 that's fine. I just, uh, you know, I didn't want to waste any pithy observations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate that. That's always the worst right? when you say something pithy and you're like, yeah, we, we, we didn't get we that. Started, yeah. Like, yeah. well, I can't recreate it because it was really in the moment and it's gone now. There you go. There you go. <laughs> you're you're yeah, safe. Yeah. You're safe to, to, to say pithy things. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the so the question is how do you navigate the, the academic versus applied kind of dichotomy and, and so on? Um, and, and, and do they let you, right? Because I know I know that <laughs> some schools just don't. You, if you're doing any consulting work, especially coming from an arts and sciences department, <laughs> that's not acceptable. And yeah. maybe more acceptable in business departments, but 
definitely not acceptable in arts and sciences departments where any kind of consulting or applied work is seen as somehow lessening the integrity of the enterprise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a stigma I've been running up against my whole life, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, and it started actually, I mean, at the risk of, of giving you too long of an answer, um, <clears throat> it started when I was in grad school because, you know, here we were in, in a social psych program and you know, we're doing research on on all of these aspects of social dynamics, but every time you want to relate it to some real world phenomenon, your professors, you know, give you the evil eye, and you're you're out of that. So I, um, <clears throat> the only the, the re I actually learned a good life lesson. You know, my professors um, would never have let me do the dissertation that I did, except that I managed to get funding for it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and then it was hard for them to, to say no. So I, um, in grad school, I was doing a lot of work on, on physical attractiveness and hmm. uh, particularly, you know, the impact on, for example, punitiveness of, uh, of in jury trials, you know, and uh, Gary, I know you're familiar with all this a lot, um, uh, you know, that better looking people get lighter right. senses, usually that kind of thing. Um, and what I realized was, you know, we're doing all of these so-called inbox studies where you're just giving people, you know, a, uh, a file folder with a picture, you know, with a snapshot, headshot. Um, and what I realized was, well, hey, guys, what about the rest of the body? You know, the people are seeing, uh, they're not just seeing the head, they're seeing the, they're seeing what the person is wearing, for example. And that's where I, I got into the psychology of fashion and, you know, how that influences the way we uh, how apparel and other products influence the way we, we see people over and above facial characteristics and so on. And uh, my, you know, they, they were not really thrilled about, about that. And so, uh, you know, I went directly into a business school. My first job was at, at NYU in the business school. And uh, I didn't even know what a marketing department was. You know, I, one of my professors said, well, you know, what you're doing is is too relevant for us. You know, maybe you want to go to a business school, to a marketing department. I said, what do they do in a marketing department? Do they teach you how to push your cart down? I mean, I had no idea that there was such a thing. Um, you know, the only time we saw business students was quite, quite honestly, they would come over to take some of our stat classes and we would all giggle at them because they weren't very good. Uh, but that was many, many years ago. You know, that was right. back in the seventies and eighties. Um, and so I, you know, I was actually delighted. I, you know, I went to a business school. Um, I, you know, I was delighted with the with the starting salary, which was greater than most of my professors. But I was also delighted at the the amount of tolerance that I did encounter um, in the you know in a marketing department. You know, they wanted me to do this stuff. That's why they brought me in and. Um, you know, and that's really why, even though, uh, you know, I, uh, I was joking before about out of work social scientists. I mean, you know, when I was applying for jobs in psych departments, they were literally getting three to 400 applications right. for everyone, you know, every job, it just wasn't happening. And, you know, so fortunately I was able to kind of branch off and I, you know, I always had this feeling of, you know, it's, it, I mean, theory is, is great. I have, you know, in the, signature of my email, it's, a, you know, it says there's nothing so practical as a good theory. I, you know, I, I do believe that, but sometimes they let the theory overwhelm the, the world, you know, and, and um, so I, I do think that, that it's a fine line. Again, in a business school, you know, it's really not too much like that. Um, 
it's kind of the dirty secret, I think, that you know, you, you always think if you take a consulting job, you better not let your colleagues find out about it. And then what you realize later is that they're all saying the same thing. Hmm. And and I found that out by the way, you know, there were several really prominent social psychologists, you know, the cream of the crop in terms of their academic stature, uh, who I found out later did a ton of consulting, right? You know, attitude research and so on. And and so I realized it, it is kind of a, uh, well, it's a bit of hypocrisy, I think, mm. but I think it's important. You know, some of it is, frank, quite honestly, jealousy, I found. Whenever, whenever I've had pushback from colleagues about writing textbooks, which are not, you know, also don't, don't count, um, it's usually jealousy because the next question I get is, well, you know, aren't we paying you enough and, and so on? And I said, well, look, you, you know, uh, First of all, you're not, but you know, but right. because I'm, because I'm married and need I say more, but um, but also you know this is a you, you want us to go into a classroom and talk about about business you know scenarios and never have experienced them. I mean, you know, I've never worked in you know in business for you know in a marketing company or anything. Um, and over the years, I've acquired lots of great consulting war stories that that I think really make a huge difference in academic. Education and by the way, for arts and sciences as well, because right. you know, I, you know, if I'm a, if I'm an undergrad psych major, it would it would be really helpful to not, not just to show me, uh, you know, movies uh, about Skinner training pigeons to dance, but also what what does that mean? You know, what does that mean when I interact with people? You know, are they react? Am I you know subtly reinforcing certain behaviors that they're that they're doing and so on? And I don't think that the you know students have a really good sense of of what this st stuff means for them in the real world, even if they're not going into academia, which you know, most of them, of course, are not. Right. And having that perspective and also, you know, teaching, I mean, teaching students how to think is pretty important. And that's, uh, that's why, I mean, I'm really, a ch I, you know, I, well, I'm in a, in a bit of a bind because, uh, you know, I've always been in a business program and, and in, at the undergraduate level, I've also, but I've, I've also felt that these business students should be taking a hell of a lot more social sciences than we're giving them, not to mention other things like philosophy and so on. Um, so I, I think there's a real disconnect there. A lot of it has to do with status and power and, you know, all the things that sociologists and anthropologists study um, and not so much about whether it's really delivering the knowledge that we need. Right. And I, I, you know, it's funny because a lot of what you're describing mirrors my experience. You know, I was doing a PhD, you know, um, and I applied for a lot of jobs. I got no interviews. The one place I got an interview, I landed the job was at a private business school. And I thought, there's no way in bleep. I want to go to a private business school because what do I know about business? I actually detested the idea of business. But then when I go there, because it's in Boston, it's nice and they paid me relatively well. I find out, well, I can really do a lot more here because they aren't necessarily fighting those theory and methodological wars. They're interested in results. What can this do to help out this problem? Right. And in that, I found a lot of freedom for doing the work that colleagues of mine at other institutions, frankly, would, would never have the chance to do, which further furthers what I call sociology self-imposed irrelevance which you can't keep yourself on the sidelines and then complain you're never in the game. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and, and also, by the way, you know, there, uh, liberal arts academics um, in general, not you necessarily 
um, are quick to make the are quick to equate marketing with bad thing with you know selling out and we joke right. with, you know yeah. and, and all of that and manipulating consumers and blah 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 but you know the the fact is that there there's plenty of outside projects that are also also pro social in nature and marketing is not just about selling keys it's also getting maybe even getting people to get vaccinated who knows but um, but we we tend not to look at that stuff. You know, and the, the the people in liberal arts, I I think have I'm guessing have no idea that there's any kind of pro-social you know marketing research that goes on, green marketing, all of sustainability, all of that stuff. Uh, all they think of is we're just trying to get people to, to buy more Coca-Cola. <laughs> it's just not you know it's just not the case all right. all the time. So uh, yeah, you know I think each of these two you know sides in this little mini mini skirmish here. Um, have have plenty of reckoning. To, you know, they really need to, to meet in in the middle. Um, and you know, clearly, clearly, the way you know the way the business discipline is evolving, I think it's actually getting less empirically based uh, than it than it was when I first came in. Because when when I came in, and this is my interpretation, I, I think people, um, academics, and business have a massive inferiority complex. Because the fact is that they weren't trained as well or as rigorously as people in psychosocial or anthro departments. And so um, in those days, when mo many of the new people they hired were like me. They were not, they didn't have a marketing degree. They had something else. Um, and, and we, you know, they never questioned anything we did because they assumed, well, if you could, you know, if you could publish in Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which I did before I went into, got my job. You could certainly publish in one of our puny little journals. You know, <laughs> that's, but today that is, I don't think that's the case. You know, the majority of, of marketing professors um, actually have marketing PhDs, not all, but the, the majority. And I, I believe that the level of rigor is, is much, much higher. So that part has gone away, but what we're seeing is, uh, you know, people in the business community, and, and I suspect a lot of, uh, former MBA students really throwing up their hands and saying, you know what, you guys are just not doing anything that's that's terribly useful. As even though you have maybe the theoretical perspective, you're not applying it in ways that that are useful. And so when you when you look at changes in, for example, in accreditation standards uh, from AACSB, you see that it's actually moving more toward um, people. Well, toward rewarding. People like the both of you guys, who, right? Who may, you know, may or may not have a huge list of, of top tier academic publications, but you have some industry experience that is extremely relevant. So, from an educational perspective, you know, it's it's great to have the theoretical uh, foundations, and I think every student should have that. But I also think it's great for them to hear a few war stories from people who have actually earn their spurs out in the field. So it's a delicate balance right. because we have plenty of adjuncts who do nothing but tell war stories mm. and they don't give any of the, you know, any of the uh, anchored in any theoretical context. We, I'm not advocating that. But on the other hand, if it's just theoretical and it doesn't apply in any way, then what are, what are you um, achieving? And, and that's true, not just for business, you know, it's true with health research, uh, public policy and so on. Right. What do you, what do you think is, is one of the biggest hurdles or, or, I mean, or have you seen across your experience too, that is 
you know, some of the, again, some of these biggest hurdles that would on the one side get or help, you know, we might say social scientists or liberal artists get a sense of, of the, the good work that you said, the pro-social aspects of marketing, that just seeing a more well-rounded, more realistic almost perspective of what marketing can actually do. It's interesting because on one side, branding as, as a term and as, as a way of thinking about, you know, what a product means for somebody is entering into some anthropological, sociological conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious to see if if they'll overlap with marketing and people's mindsets, you know, down the road. But I'm just curious in that perspective too, like what are some of these biggest hurdles that you've seen in terms of getting, uh, you know, other other folks that if they're on the social science side to understand the the like the more holistic picture of what marketing actually is? Um, well, you know, it's hard to generalize. I, I, I've encountered in, in some cases, I've encountered, frankly, some condescension uh, about the, you know, the, the quality of our, the work that we do versus the work that's done, say, mainstream psychology. Um, I don't think, I, I think that at one point, as I was saying, that was merited. I, I don't, it's not anymore. You know, the, the, the level of work is as good or better, I believe, for the most part. But, you know, they're, they're, part of it is, um, it's kind of this uh, self-perpetuating myth that, well, you can go off and chase the money, but you know, by giving into temptation like that, you're selling your soul to the devil. And, you know, when, when a student has been, has been told that, you know, throughout their undergraduate and certainly their, their graduate school years, uh, that doesn't create a very receptive kind of, (laughs) kind of, kind of, uh, you know, approach, but, um, you know, in, in my experience, I mean, well, first of all, especially in the area of consumer behavior, which is what I work in consumer psychology, we, we've never really had this issue, frankly, because, you know, m- many of the uh, the leaders in the field did come from psychology and other social sciences. It's not, you know, w- when you look at some of the other business disciplines, uh, they're, they're not really, uh, they, they may or may not have had that kind of liberal arts orientation. Now, someone in accounting is pro- probably didn't take too many liberal arts courses. They should have. Right. Uh, but, but someone studying consumer psychology is probably if they didn't come out of a program like this, they're, they probably taken courses over in the psych or social department. And so they're extremely amenable to this, but that's, I think the, you know, that's the extreme. And I would guess in management, the same thing for OR kinds of research, because these, right. these are many of them were industrial psychologists, you know, who mm. came into a business school. So I, I don't think that marketing has that big of a problem really. Uh, I, my guess is that some of the other departments would have a bigger problem, but, but today, um, you know, the, the, the applied issue is, is not, it, it's kind of a, uh, I don't, I don't know what what's I'm trying to think of the expression, a, uh, something in a, in a something, <laughs> a, a, uh, oh, it's been a long day. Um, yeah. it's a, it, well, there's an expression I was thinking of, but it, it's been over, I think it's been overplayed hmm. because, um, uh, because so much of what we do is is applied. Um, only a couple of the you know the the really the big journals that that are are you know like Journal of Consumer Research. Um, in some cases, reviewers will ding you if you talk about applications of what your of what mm. research is. 
but for the most part, uh, that that is not the case anymore. So it, it's kind of an outdated stereotype that there's this animosity. I don't think that it's the case today, but I do think, rightly or wrongly, there's a lot of jealousy that people in a business school are paid more. You know, mm-hmm. people across the street are making a lot more than I am, and you know, I I mean, how look if you're you're a social scientist, you know how we rationalize things. And so, yes. you know, you're going to say, yeah, well, sure, they're getting paid more. I mean, they're not doing good work. You know, they sold out, but yeah, right. they, you know, sure, they make money. We have our honor, though. And you can't <laughs> put a price tag on that. And you, you can't. certainly can't pay your mortgage with it. <laughs> I am familiar with this. You know, and I, I, I'm assuming you've had these conversations at conferences where, like, oh, so you're just selling out for the man. I'm like, well, you know, you have a couple of choices here. One, you can keep yelling from outside the gates about the injustices, or you can try to go inside and make changes of that. And trust yeah. me, my job's harder. You know, going inside is much yeah, yeah. harder because yeah. now I got to learn how to speak their language and translate what it is that we know as sociologists or anthropologists or psychologists into something that they can understand and want to hear. And that's right. where I think like with your work, and even work of those who are not academics, you're academically trained, but yet they use the, the social sciences as a vehicle for explanation. Yeah. And I wish, I really wish that grad schools, they taught more of that translational work, that to take like these theories and concepts and these ideas and render them for broader audiences. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the key and you know, something I've struggled with all my, my life because, uh, you know, I'm also a textbook author and you know, there again, you have the challenge of taking a fairly complicated idea and putting it into a paragraph that a 20 year old will read. You know, good luck with that. Um, you know, but but also I, I do think that that this influx of consultants has had a very positive impact on business. You know, we don't talk about that much, but, you know, how many how many, um, you know, academic consultants have said to their clients, you know, that's probably not such a good idea. Right. <laughs> that you're doing that or you know that particular advertisement probably is not you know is 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 not too great and and when you talk about selling out to the man you know there there is there definitely is some of that but plenty of opposite examples you know I'm thinking of one colleague actually a sociologist very well known in our field and um for years and years he he was working against he was an advertising specialist he was working in in lawsuits against the tobacco company Right. You know, talking about the impact on children at work or what have you. So I'm not sure how, you know, he did very sound, rigorous research that showed how kids were affected by cigarette advertising. I'm not sure how that is selling out to the man. Right. And I even think like Jeffrey Pfeffer um, from Stanford, you know, he has a good, really good book called Management BS. And that most of the work being done by management consultants isn't rooted in any actual, you know, evidence. It's just yeah. like, the, and he has another book. I'm looking at it right now. You know, ha- hard facts, dangerous myth, half truths, and total nonsense. So it goes into <laughs> like, huh, how can we actually embed these ideas into something that is scientifically based, which actually touches upon who we are as people, as human beings, and not just some rationalized notion of what we think we want to do, but something yeah. that is really what we should do, knowing how people think, function, and work together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think a great example of that, which both of you guys, I, I'm guessing, probably work with, is design thinking. Right? Yeah, a lot. You know, which 
I believe, you know, originated in, in the liberal arts, right? Am I, you know, in, in uh, well, psychology, Donald Norman, people like that, um, but has had a, you know, a huge impact on the quality of the goods and services that we experience all the time. So that's very positive, I think. Yeah, when I was reading about design, thinking the first time a human-centered design, I'm like, that's it? <laughs> so you're talking about, <laughs> so you're talking about ethnography yeah, and yeah. observation. Sure. And we're and you rebranded it. Talk about good marketing, right? We're going to call it human centered design. I'm like, there you go. That's the good stuff. Yeah. Well, you know what? It, it is all branding. It is all branding because you know everything that not every many things that people are talking about today. They were publishing on this stuff 20, 30 years ago, and it's only after you've been doing this for a while you realize <laughs> that it's old wine and new bottles. Sometimes, you know. Reminds me uh, of like uh, each generation has to have their buzzwords and, and so on. Yeah, right. That's fine. That's There's fine. a famous story of Edward Bernays, right? Who, you know, Freud's nephew who yeah. wanted to get women to, to smoke more and that it was very unwomanly for women to smoke. So he called yeah. them freedom torches <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was a sign of feminism and he had all like these, like, you know, single women lighting up and, you know, with the freedom torches, what's more American than uh, us. Yeah in the twenties and a woman's, you know, suffragette smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. What's in a name. Right? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so I think one thing I'd love to dig into with this is the, the, the way that, so, you know, in, in your book, new chameleons, you're, you're bringing this interesting lens to marketing on one level that is raising this, this, you know, perspective that traditional marketing has actually done, some of the stuff we're kind of saying we should be aware, be cautious of in terms of saying, this is how life is. This is how people are. We can put them in Xboxes. Um, and we have to actually think a little bit more dynamically is, is um, the very short praises of what you're writing about. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I'd love to kind of break some of these ideas down on, on two levels. One, uh, because so our, you know, our audience on this podcast are, are folks that work in business. They're social scientists. Um, they're folks that are not social scientists, again, that work in business, but work in the experience design mm -hmm. field. Uh, and so I, I think what thing would be really helpful is kind of framing up how traditional marketing is. I mean, we've all heard of market segmentation, right? It's like, that's the baseline. Um, and I'm not going to assume all listeners have. So I, I want to get us kind of a baseline of how has yeah. sort of marketing framed up people? And yeah. then like, how are you helping us break that down today? That is this idea of, of like, I mean, Freedom Torch is a good example too, because it's about what is it? It's someone's social role versus the, the thing, right? And so it's going to kind of get us into this idea of what is what is a product? What is a brand in essence? But so so we'll start with like, what is what is what is marketing done traditionally to kind of put people in X boxes or cages, as you call them very lovingly? Right. Okay. Well, you know, I'll try to, yeah. I always say, you know, be, be careful when you ask a professor a question. <laughs> I know, right? Yep. But do, um, do, do you have any PowerPoint slides on this, Michael? You know, I I, um, I I officiated at my nephew's wedding a couple of years ago, and I really was I really wanted to do a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> of the you know the vows and right right right. <laughs> anyway, um, I mean, first of all, we have to recognize that you know marketing the way we are looking at it today is is a relatively new phenomenon because for the most part, it's only recently that we had a large enough uh, group of people other than the, the aristocrats who had the disposable income to actually make choices. I mean, in the old days, you took what you got and you were happy with it, you know? 
so really, you know, we, we can start it, maybe start at the Industrial Revolution and work from there. And, and, and when that, you know, when that transformed our culture uh, back in the late 1800s uh, and into the early 1900s, the, the focus was on how do we maximize output and as efficiently as possible, which was a new concept, you know. And so when, when somebody like Henry Ford comes up with this uh, assembly line idea, obviously it's a huge revolution, uh, but what it does is it, it, uh, it privileges uh, quality, I mean, quantity over quantity, uh, quanti right. <laughs> quantity over quality, excuse me, um, which was fine at the time. You know, and Henry Ford famously said, as I note in, in the book, I think, uh, you know, my customers can have their, their Model T any color they want as long as it's black. And, and so, you know, it finally, you know, our economy got to the point where it was so sophisticated that now it was technically possible to offer consumers choices of colors and other things. And so actually it was General Motors that stepped into the breach and, and basically invented the concept of market segmentation because uh, because they started to look at, uh, at, at having at least division, separate divisions, you know, based largely based on income. So if you couldn't afford a Cadillac, you could put your family in a Chevrolet. Um, and that was a very important recognition. It seems obvious to us, uh, you know, clearly, but the recognition that not every consumer has the same resources or the same desires. That was a really, really groundbreaking observation. And that formed the basis for much of the market segmentation that, that went on for the rest of that century and into this one, where what we realized was, hey, you know, uh, because it, it costs us money to develop a message, uh, let's try to minimize the number of messages that we develop. And because it costs us money to develop a product, let's minimize the number of permutations of that product, because that's all about scale economy. And it right. makes sense. Um, but, you know, and, and at the time, you know, culturally, our society was kind of built around this notion of homogeneity as well, where we had these large blocks of people and largely shaped by the media, you know, because we only had three, maybe four television networks uh, in the UK, only two. Uh, everybody was reading magazines like Time, you know, that were that were had huge uh, circulations and so on. And so it, it you know, made a huge amount of sense to uh, to basically say, let's segment. In other words, let's let's identify probably one, maybe a few other uh, large homogeneous groups of people who can all get the same message. We don't have to adapt it for them. They're all going to pretty much get it and they're all going to pretty much want the same product. And so that that was tremendously efficient for for the uh, for our economy and you know for the marketing system. But when we fast forward to today, we no longer have that homogeneous kind of situation. I mean, we you know, if anything, we're way too fragmented. And I think you know we could talk about the political ramifications of fragmentation and polarization and so on. But even in terms of you know aesthetics and our desires for for products, we we each are so different now because we we've been exposed to other possibilities. You know we see on the internet and on before that on TV uh, whether or not it was accurate. Uh, you know we saw alternative ways of living. 
people in other countries, you know, foods right. that people ate elsewhere, et cetera, uh, clothing that they wore, cars that they drove, and on and on. Um, and so people today, I think many of us uh, in the developed world, at least, um, really are more like lifestyle artists. We're, we're not just accepting this kind of, you know, organization man, uh, 1950s approach where everybody's pretty much the same, not that they really were the same, but we thought of them that way. And people thought of, people didn't really, you know, conformity was a big deal, et cetera. Um, today, people are, are, are taught, our culture teaches us to value individuality, at least to an extent. Uh, it teaches us that there are a lot of unique experiences out there and you don't have to be hemmed in or, or labeled, you know, along with a, with a big group. And so it, and one thing to emphasize, it's not that, for example, younger people, it's not that they don't like brands, you know, it's not that they don't like products, you know, is it the end of marketing? It's just the beginning of marketing. These kids love brands, but they want them on their own terms. In other words, they're using the brands more proactively and they're combining brands and experiences in ways that we didn't used to do. So we used to get kind of sold the whole package. You know, if you if you bought this car, you probably want this and this and this. Um, and then you're just like your neighbors. But today, if you buy this car, it doesn't mean you have to buy that dress over there. And so there's a huge amount of heterogeneity. And what that means is that it no longer makes much sense to talk to somebody just you know, as, as a member of 50, you know, along with 50,000 other people. And so that means that the way that we do marketing has to change. And one of, one of the ways it has to change is by recognizing, and we have, you know, we're, we have the technology, we can talk about the ethical issues, which are huge, but we have the technology to talk about markets of one today. We can literally track each person you know, we know what they do. We know what they like. We can send them messages that are tailored to them. We can have them design products on their own that that meet their needs. And so, um, you know, after the, the the movement toward fragmentation, you know, a second important thing is that consumers are much more, as I said, proactive, not just in terms of choosing what they like, but literally creating what they like. In other words, take creating a pastiche from all of the brands and so on, that's just their basic building blocks. And what they're doing is they're each creating a, a somewhat unique picture of themselves. And so this, this notion of, the, we could talk about the prosumer rather than the consumer, some people like that. But, you know, consumer-generated content, uh, engagement, how do you engage consumers in a world where there's so many distractions? And the, the answer is you get them to participate not only in the consumption of what they're of what they bought, but sometimes in the production of what they bought by allowing them input into the design of the of the product. Maybe you know sending them samples, give, getting feedback, doing doing a lot more marketing research before launch rather than after. We can talk about some of those techniques, but that's a profoundly different marketing environment. So, you know, when people ask me, what's the biggest marketing development of the last 10 or 20 years? Um, you know, my, my answer is consumer generated content and so-called internet 2.0, where it's much more of a two-way street where consumers are part of the conversation. So, you know, my, to summarize that, I think the biggest change that marketers have to understand their mindset boils down to the changing a very tiny word in a sentence. 
And that is changing from marketing to consumers to marketing with consumers. And if you, if you can embrace that tiny change, you know, to, to with, it's unbelievable how that unlocks your perspective because now rather than, you know, keeping everything secret until you're absolutely ready to, you know, to uh, launch it like Apple does, you're actually partnering with your customers and industrial marketers actually ironically have done this for many, many years. You partner with your best customers and they become your product developers and your salespeople. And, really and, and so, and the gig economy and all of these things are related to this notion of consumers really taking much more ownership in this relationship. It's really funny because there's like two things I want to think about, but I, I, I just before I talked to you today, I just got off a call with a company um, who is involved in creating products for live streaming um, and also, you know, video game streaming. So streaming of educational content, video game streaming. And we were literally doing this. They were asking me, what kind of things do you want to see? What kind of things should we build in? How should we think about this kind of product? And I was giving them ideas uh, right. about, well, you know, if you did a this, if you did a that, if it worked this way. I mean, it goes back into this design thinking, right? That, you know, listening to, you know, when I was, I was naive enough when I first went to a business school where I said, you mean that you don't always listen to your customers? And they were like, no, why would we do that? I'm like, I don't know. It seems like you might want to ask them. They're like, really? And that was like revolutionary thinking back when I first started teaching. It, you them. know, it, that's, that, that's what people outside of this crazy world don't understand. It's so obvious. <laughs> of course you listen to your customers, you know, of course you, right. I mean, we, we, it's all about meeting needs, we, their needs. We know that. Now, that's the marketing concept, et cetera. But how do you meet them? Well, you, you sit in your office and say, well, I'll bet they need that. You know, let's give them that. You get an MBA, that. Michael. You get an MBA, and that's, <laughs> that, that teaches you everything you need to know that's about running a business. All you have to, I don't need to talk to my customers. I got an MBA. What do exactly. I what do you need that? The yeah. other thing that The other thing that makes me think, and this goes back to the applying of the sociology or social psychology, how do you categorize people in an era of intersectionality, right? Where nobody is one thing and right. what thing I am right now depends on what moment I'm in and the conversation I'm having and what I'm seeing on television and the song I'm hearing on the radio, yeah. et cetera. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the basic point that I'm, you know, that I'm making in, in my, in my book, you know, about the new chameleons, because, you know, for example, when we talk, you know, gender is a, of course a huge one, you know, uh, you can't escape talking about it. I mean, you talk about the fluidity of a concept, you know, you, you, you talk about the, this old fashioned dichotomy of male and female. Where did that go? Right. Uh, you know, th those of us who are older still think of people as male or female. But, you know, my my students and, you know, probably yours, they, they don't quite think that way, you know. And so there's no such thing as being male because right now I'm feeling pretty male, but I don't know, I might feel pretty female later. Right. Who knows, you know. Uh, that didn't come out right at all, but, well, but so what, the, uh, what the kids call fluidity. That's what the yeah, kids call yeah. fluidity. The fluidity. <laughs> and, and, and that's true. Of, you know, that's true of so many of these categories, you know, even the, the really basic ones, like say income or something like that. I mean, how many, you know, how many people in the last five years have had dramatic fluctuations in their income? You know, maybe unfortunately they're broke today after the pandemic, or, you know, maybe they just, maybe they, they got a, a windfall because they, invented a product that people like, you know, they sold sweatpants during the pandemic. I don't, some people made money, some people lost money. 
but the but the point is that you know many of us have you know we've all been relatively rich and relatively poor. So how can we how can we talk that way? And the same is true, you know, when you talk about race, obviously. Right. How do we define race and what does it mean to be black? Or is there such a thing as white versus black? I don't think so anymore. Um, and, and many of these basic categories, um, not, you know, not age, age is one of those, you know, 60 is the new 40, 80 is the new 60. Um, and those are just the basic demographic categories. You know, when we get into some of these other false dichotomies, it, it, it's totally broken down. You know, uh, for example, one that I, you know, I talk about is uh, work versus play. You know, we have a, we have our play time, we have our work time, we do play here, we work here, we wear this. Here we wear this. Here, well, after the last year, that one shot the hell. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the whole dichotomy, and and people are playing at work and working at play. You know, right? They're working at play in the sense that they're, you know, some people who are, you know, timing their their jogs in the morning with the precision of, you know, designing a nuclear submarine and posting it online. So that's hard work. You know, and then people go to work and they're playing because they're on video games all day long until their boss comes by now they're at home doing it all the time but that you know the point is that the, you know we we make these assumptions that people are either doing this or they're doing that and it just we all know from our own experience oh that doesn't apply to me you know so when i when i say to my students you know when i talk to them about segmentation you know they just nod their heads they write down the notes yes uh, you know gender blah blah so i say to them okay so basically you know here i have a class of of 30 of you, you're, you're all pretty much, you're 20 years old, you all go to this uh, relatively expensive private Jesuit school in an urban area, et cetera. Therefore, you're all identical, right? I mean, is it fair to say that, you know, I can tell companies that I might work with that you guys all share the same taste because you're all the same, right? Right. And you can imagine that none of them accept that. Well, no, I'm not the same as anybody else. It's other people who are the same as other people, but I'm an individual. And I and I think each of us would react that way. And you know, uh, I, I I love uh, you know back to the, the book Generation X. You know, way way back uh, the right. by Douglas Copeland that gave that you know whole thing its name. You know, he has a he has a chapter title that that's uh, that says I am not a market segment. Hmm. And that book was published in I don't know eighty one or something or ninety one something like that. Uh, we don't none of us want to be a market segment. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that our students don't want to work in cubicles, you know, they don't want to be pigeonholed in any way. That's not the way that they're learning to think today. And I, I think it's fantastic. And so on one level, it's, it's you know, the onus of, of marketing and other in, in industries and groups to catch up to that idea, right, that we have to work in this intersectional space. And I think two things you said before that are really worth tagging on here um, is this idea, um, I like this, you know, the... Um, the prosumer versus consumer in terms of, of that, the, you know, breaking the idea also that consumption is just this passive activity that you just receive an object or you like, you, you consume it. Right. right. Um, and like rethinking that metaphor almost. Um, and the other piece is that you noted too, that, that we are entering like an increasingly fragmented cultural space in terms of that there is just much more fragmentation happening. So um, one of the metaphors you talked about in the book that I, I liked um, it was just this notion of thinking in constellations, almost of products and experiences. And so rather than saying you want this, as you said before, you get this car, that means you get that dress, but more, but you could actually take the constellation between a dress and a car purchase and then think about other products that somebody might purchase with that. 
as an element of self-expression or as, as they saw it on social media or whatever it is. So yeah. I think that it's interesting that as we are uh, grappling with the fragmentation of, of both choice and identity, uh, we are also still, uh, you know, again, being more engaged, but then also making some level of collective decisions. Because the other piece that, that I guess I'll add a third piece to my equation that, that I like that you talked about was this idea that we are buying by consensus more often now also. We'll look mm -hmm. online what our friends are buying or we'll get validation by saying, hey, I just picked up whatever. I just did my Strava run. Therefore, you know, I run, I ran 10 miles or whatever. So we do more like consensus consumption, I guess, on mm -hmm. one level too. So I think that's an interesting piece. So I don't know. So how do, how do we triangulate yeah. the idea of fragmentation of culture yeah. that there's so much more options, but we are doing it kind of together almost. Well, we're doing it, you know, partly together, partly apart. We don't, we don't know anymore. Uh, you know, this boundary, <laughs> this boundary between that I, this, you know, the way I label it is the boundary between me versus we has gone away. And so we buy by committee and, you know, people are, they constantly, it's, I think of it as, as the Borg, you know, from Star Trek. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. And I usually, and my students look at me like, what is Star Trek? But, you know, the Borg, yeah. the collective that we just, we keep absorbing all of these, you know, every time somebody joins my network, you know, they're part of this, they're part of this thing. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we, what we're doing, what we're seeing is that uh, to address that last point first, because I think it's, it's so crucial for, for marketers, especially retailers. Uh, one of the things that's changed, and, and, and there hasn't been a lot of good uh, work done on, on this, it's really just observational, but, um, but I'm pretty confident that, that it's the case. Um, the, the entire buying process, the decision-making process um, has, has changed. Um, and, and, and this is a process that we teach almost like it's sacred uh, to our students in terms of of uh, decision making, you know, problem recognition, um, uh, evaluation of alternatives. You know, there's a number of steps. Uh, the thing is that today, what we're seeing, and, and Google, Google knows this very well. Google calls this the ZMOT, the zero moment of truth, which is when the the trans the decision actually happens. You know, the transaction actually happens, and and what they what they show, and and they probably do have data. Come to think of it. Um, hmm. What they, what they show is that ironically, and I love this irony, you know, the internet is supposed to simplify our lives and make things so much faster. What we're seeing is, and, and, uh, and ask any young person this will confirm it, for, for even very routine purchases, like say a new garment or, or something, um, the amount of homework that's going into that before the purchase is made is, is astronomical. I'm glad so you say that. <laughs> so, yeah, because, it, you know, so it used to be that that, you know, you would do all this kind of evaluating and you would do information search and you would Google and do all these things. And then you go to the store, to the website and you would make your and you would make your decision at that time. Now, today, what retailers don't seem to understand is that in many cases, by by the time that that customer opens the door of their store or enters their website, They've already made up their mind. Right. All they're doing is they're looking for the best place to buy. Mm -hmm. They've made up their mind because they have Googled it, but they've also, uh, you know, uh, th there's a reason that YouTube is the second. Um, this is a great trivia question. Right? Google is the most popular browser in the world. YouTube is the second. And the reason is, I think, largely because people, especially younger people, you know, anytime they want a product, they're going to say, you know, what is the best X to buy and where should I buy it? Right. 
So they're bringing up all these reviews, they're bringing up Yelp and you know all these other things, um, and 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 liter and often actually consulting members of their network. You know, I've seen one app. I don't know if it's still out there, but I had one of my doc, uh, one of my grad students uh, post a picture of herself, um, and basically what it is is uh, here what it's called, but her network votes on whether she should wear that outfit on a date. <laughs> Interesting. So so she's getting dressed by committee. You know oh, what I mean? Wow. I mean yeah. Literally, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. Uh, now, this is you know not that common yet, but I think it's going to be more and more common where you don't do things unless your your network has voted on that and has sanctioned that. So that to me is kind of scary. Um, yeah. But 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 again, you know, again, from a very strategic point of view, what it means to marketers is that the time to get the consumer when they're still kind of malleable or fluid in their thinking about a brand is much, much earlier than it used to be. You don't have that long runway that you used to have. And so, especially if you're a retailer at the end of that channel, you need to insert yourself, you know, back up through that channel much more aggressively, or you're basically just going to become a warehouse. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're not the lowest price warehouse, you're going to become a bankrupt warehouse. And the reason why I said I love the, the fact you said they do a lot of research, we've had this debate at my school where people tell me, so, you know, I'm, I'm a very much, we should have research classes, methods classes. They say, students don't like to do research. And I, I'm like, excuse me? They don't like to do the research you want them to do. Yes. But all they do is research all their the fantasy football teams. All they do is research what they're going to buy, where they're going to go eat, who is the best ramen. I mean, that's all they do is research. They don't do the research that you think counts as research, but they do do a lot of research. Yeah, they do research, but you know what? Um, there's only one, there's a big difference. Um, the sources that they consult aren't necessarily valid. <laughs> well, <there's always laughs> they're, not too, they're not too concerned about validity or reliability, you know, <laughs> when they do a study. But yeah, I mean, they, you know, that's what they're doing 24 seven is just researching stuff. And it might not be the way we do research. You know, it's, it's more like, uh, you know, texting your buddy, hey, where should I go to lunch? Mm -hmm. But they're definitely going to consult other sources, even if it is for something like going to lunch. I mean, forget about important decisions. I'm talking right. about the everyday stuff. Right. Absolutely. And, and this is a fundamental change, um, you know, and, and another part of it, you know, I mentioned this decision making model because this is pretty much the gospel. You know, this is what we teach and may I call to I teach it. Um, you know, the, that model is predicated on an individual decision maker. So when you're right. talking about the collective issues, um, mm -hmm. now, you know, obviously, like in social psychology, we, we obviously recognize the power of the group to influence uh, decisions. But the model, even there, is always of the lone decision maker. Mm. The reality right. is, in the types of decisions that we look at, it's, it's very often more likely to be a, a, either a dyadic decision or a group decision. Certainly like in B2B context, it's usually not one person, right? It's a committee or a buying center of some kind. But our models, our theories of decision-making are very weak when it comes to, to uh, joint or collective decision-making. Yeah, it calls into question like this fallacy of this rational choice model. And I don't know how anybody can go down a, a, a cereal aisle and believe in rational choice because it's not as if we're sitting there going, well, let me make the best informed decision based on nutritional content yeah. versus my own dietary needs along with the price point and, you know, and where they source their oats. I mean, you know, it's mm -hmm. like more of this, now say emotional, social, effective, nostalgic, 
whatever kind of amalgamation yeah. of forces that I think people in business don't like because they don't know how to control it. Right, right. And, you know, as much as I hate to contradict myself because I'm always right, um, right. I have to contradict myself because that, what you just said, is a segmentation issue. Because what you're talking about there is product involvement. And, and, the rea- and, and you're, you know, I think your description is accurate, right? But, but the reality is that there are people who will do exactly what you said. Right, they're going to look. They're going to look at the potassium level in the right you know, in the food or whatever it is, because that happens to be something that's more central to their self. Maybe you know, maybe they're a wellness freak or, or what have you. Uh, you know, you're not going to look at that, but when you go shopping for cars, you're really going to get your you know get under the hood. So um, there's definitely we all we know that there's always a huge difference between low involvement and high involvement. Or any, but 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 the important thing to recognize is there's no category that is low involvement for everybody, mm. right? Right. So even if you and and you know what I tell my students is you know most of you, sorry to say, are going to be marketing low involvement products. You know you're more likely to be right. selling kitty litter than you are you know Nike sneakers, but that's where the real marketing challenges come in. It's easy to sell anybody Nike sneakers because the story has already been told. Your job is to tell a story about something that people don't care about. And that's, and that's why I think the, you know, the bar has been lifted in terms of creativity in marketing um, because mm-hmm. it is so much more challenging to go beyond that functional level and get into the, you know, more about the, the, the brand narratives and the, the emotional attachments because, yeah, we, the three of us on this call, we all know that that's why people buy most things. And then they, and then after the fact, they rationalize by pointing out all the great features of the product. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of, the, one of the big sea changes in, in academic and in, in, I think, in practitioner marketing for the, in the last two decades or so is, is, is seeing how much emphasis is shifting away from cognitive activity and toward affective, or affective activity, toward emotional activity. Um, and now, you know, I, I, I sort of caught myself as I said that because the exception is all of the focus on, on uh, uh, neuroscience and, and, you know, rational decision making like you were talking about and, and, and that kind of thing, uh, nudges and, and, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is great stuff. Um, but, you know, it used to be that, you know, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm working now with, uh, with Nielsen uh, on, uh, on updating their, the model that they use to look at brand loyalty for their clients. And uh, what I've done is, uh, you know, their, their model worked reasonably well, but it was largely based, it, the typical, and I only mention this because it's, it's typical of all the big companies and how they do this. Um, it largely focuses on the functionality of products right. and brands. And the assumption mm-hmm. is that the brand that works better gets, the, gets more loyalty. We all know that that's really not the case. That's, so that like what, you know, what we've done is to build in a lot more measures, <clears throat> excuse me, of what I call brand resonance, which is, which is when, when a brand really connects with a project of yours, you know, an identity project of, of yours. And we, we found in, in, in actually in four very different product categories in four different countries, the, the gain in predictive ability by adding in a, com, a components of, you know, of attitudes that, relate not just to this, but to this is right. enormous. And that's what a lot of marketers still don't understand. 
you know, and, and frankly, I think that's where a lot of social scientists could really make a contribution. And I think the two of you are great examples of, of that. You know, we need we need more of that because these MBAs, you know, they were taught about functionality. Most of them, unless they took a class with me, you know, they weren't taught about about this other stuff. You know, they weren't taught taught about ritualistic behaviors, right, Adam? You know, they weren't they weren't taught about you know reference group influences, Gary. You know, and so yes. they were they were taught about you know miles per gallon <laughs> you know, and things like that. So yeah, not not the idea that 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 car means my family vacation and road trip and memories built together and, and exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, hundred percent. I think that that's, that's super interesting. And, uh, and it's exciting to hear that like, this is, this is kind of a direction that like we're, we're you're helping kind of tip marketing and also helping tip some of the giants to also think in terms of their models um, is incredibly important uh, because it is something I see in also in my own work too, where it's like a lot of it is, even though I work, I work with researchers to help them, you know, do research, but bring in the anthropology and, and the cultural side, but really this question of why do like, what do things mean? What is the underlying meaning behind a product or a service, or even, even an idea, you know, such as, such as like, why do these genes work for me or, or what does social justice mean in a retail setting even, you know? So um, I think yeah. this is such an interesting piece to, to kind of bring in there too, because it is both about like the, you know, it, marketers, as you know, kind of tend to go to the head when it's really, how do we also bring the heart into that conversation? Um, and kind of in between those is this notion of meaning to it. Like, what does it mean to me? Why, do, why does this matter? And so something else that you, you say in the book too, that, that I would tag onto this is, you know, thinking it like strategically as a marketer, trying to like bring a product or an idea to, to someone's mind or how do you attach it to them is uh, again, this notion that if you actually began with something like a social role that they're trying to fulfill, then how do brands either resonate or different things resonate or interoperate with that idea is, is interesting. So I want to twist this question by asking you about ethics with it. And um, cause we, we started out like with the social science question of, you know, which we don't, we're not going to say this, but just like, it seems that there's, there's ethical questions of like, are you manipulating? We'll just say on a very base level. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not saying that's happening, but if, if someone came with an argument, how do we help both dismantle it or just like speak to it, right? And how do we think about what are the ethics of new marketing um, when we actually are talking a bit about effective emotion, getting to the heart as well as the head? Um, how do we think about that? How do we approach that? Yeah, well, I, um, I mean, a few, a few things come to, come to mind. Um, you know, uh, well, let, let, me, let me think about this a, a second. I mean, well, the, the the flip answer is that we don't manipulate people because if we did, we'd be a lot more successful. I mean, when you when you when you look at the, when you look at the new product uh, failure rate, most you know it's usually about sixty to sixty to eighty percent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if if those people really knew what they were doing, why why are eighty percent of their brands you know not succeeding? <laughs> now that you know that doesn't mean that they're not trying, right? Uh, yeah. So that doesn't really get to the ethical part of it. But, you know, um, isn't that old joke? Like, we know we're wasting 50% of our marketing budget. We just don't know which 50%. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John Wanamaker here in Philly said that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the ethics of, of manipulation, I mean, first of all, yeah, first of all, yes, there are bad actors out there. And, you know, there are marketing people who shouldn't, who have uh, poisoned the well for others. So, I'm not going to apologize for some of the really heinous, you know, things that, that have happened or deny that they've happened. Uh, but I, but I really, honestly, don't think that that is representative of, of the field. Um, 
Uh, first, you know, and, and one reason is very crass. It's not good business. You know, it's just not good. I mean, it's good business to be ethical. And it's, you know, there's, and, and we're seeing so much and marketers are contributing to this work. You know, what's the ROI of sustainability? What's the ROI of, well, you know, remarketing or, you know, any of those, any of those things, you know, what's the ROI of paying your employees more? Those are marketing questions. You know, they're not just management. They're not just for people in management departments, you know, minimum wage versus, you know, whatever. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, you can, um, there's a lot of positive things that, that you can do. Um, and like I said, you know, it's, it's, well, usually the phrase is doing well by doing good. You know, it, the research has shown that I've seen anyway, that there is, there is a clear lift in, in financial return when companies practice sustainable marketing. And so I can't necessarily speak to how much darkness lies in the heart of the marketer, but in terms of what's coming out, his or her motivation, it actually syncs with ethical behavior for the most part. Now, again, there are some bad actors out there, you know, but but those are usually with co in companies that are just trying to expand their customer base in a very shallow way. In other words, they want to touch a lot of people, but they're only probably going to sell them one thing or or two things. You know, um, again, you know, what we can show is that that the opposite approach makes a lot more sense. And I say this to my students that are sick of hearing it. it. It costs much more to attract a new customer than to keep an old one. Now, how do you keep an old one? Most marketers don't care. They, they say, I got to get that next guy and I'm going to do whatever it takes. But the smart marketers say, well, the way I do that is, you know, I remember the 80-20 rule, you know, 20% of my revenue, uh, 20, excuse me, 80% um, of my revenue is accounted for by 20% of my customers. So right. if, if I'm smart, I, I'm not going to be unethical. In fact, I'm going to be, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to identify at the minimum that 20%, you know, my hardcore customers, and I'm going to shower them with riches. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rip them off because this is about a relationship. This is about, you know, what we call lifetime customer value which is a metric that has emerged today is I think probably one of the most important metrics. You know, it's not, you know, the, one of the biggest problems in business, not just in marketing, is that short-sighted approach because everybody's worried about the next quarter. And so they can't take a long-term approach. But, you know, relationship marketing by its very nature is not built on that premise. It's built on the premise that you may not see results this year. So you have to be willing to invest in the long-term. And therefore, you know, it's hard enough to do that. Any unethical behavior on your part is certainly not going to help your cause. And so it's self-defeating. One, one of the things that I've always thought about marketing, and this might be an oversimplification, but it just seems like marketing is, you know, it's about increasing the acceptability of an idea. You know, that idea might be buying a car, it might be getting vaccinated or something like that. But it's this idea of increasing the acceptability of an idea to somebody to affect some behavioral change. Well, it's, you know, it's about, it's not just about change. I mean, it's about, it's starting at the end and working backwards. It's starting by identifying an unmet need. And this is the positive side of, of marketing, you know, and, and most people just don't think of it this way, but it's, it's very simple. Um, 
you know, if I if I can identify a need, if 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 something you're doing isn't satisfactory, or you know, it just doesn't exist, a solution to a problem you have, I'm going to improve your life by coming up with a solution. So I'm first going to identify the the gap between where you are now, where you want to be, no matter what, you know, even if, if it's I don't know, better golf swing, whatever it is. Um, and now I'm going to work backwards. And I'm going to, that's where I'm going to, to develop my, my campaign. And that's where I'm going to think about, you know, the personas of the people who, who might want to use this, et cetera. So it, it's not just about changing um, attitudes. It's about starting with, you know, what are those attitudes? What are those behaviors? What do they mean? And how can I perhaps maybe expand them or adapt them? to uh, allow my product to participate. So for, for example, you know, we just recently had Sanco de Mayo, you know, a, we love to talk about that as a holiday that marketers invented, right? Has no significance yeah. in Mexico, uh, but it's a great excuse to drink a lot of booze um, during a period where there wasn't a big holiday between St. Patrick's Day and Memorial Day. That's why they chose May 5th. So there, you know, there's an there's an example of that. I'm not sure if I'm rambling, but you know, it, it, no, no. you know, that the idea is to, is is to kind of get your brand first. Identify what is your brand idea, what is the narrative, and rather than reinvent the light bulb, see if you can't uh, hitch a ride with with a cultural idea that already is out there. You know, like like Valentine's Day and Christmas and. And, uh, you know, things like that or weddings and anniversaries and, you know, all the great stories of companies like De Beers Diamonds, you know, that created the notion of an engagement ring. And so understanding that that intersection between culture and and commerce, you know, that that's where it gets so interesting. And that's where, you know, people people often don't understand how much uh, control marketers have over their everyday experiences because you know, the popular culture, all the things that we consume are, par are part of the marketing system. It's when people think of marketing, when I ask my students, usually on my the first day, if I teach a principles of marketing class, I, I ask them to define marketing at the first thing, uh, first day of class. And invariably, I get one of two responses, one selling and two advertising. And, and that's the typical layman's conception, I think, of what marketers do. But as you guys know, that's just the tail end, mm. right? What you guys do, you what you guys are doing is much more at the at the beginning. It's much more seminal, I think. Yeah, I think that's right on. You know, I, I think, and that's um, it's important on that level to help sort of reshape that thinking in terms of that um, one, as you said, like marketing is both all around us as a thing, but then also it's just, I, I like this idea of how do you, <laughs> the way you said it, how do you let a product participate in the existing meanings right. um, is a really great idea, a, a great visualization actually. Cause I think that that's, that is, I think when we see social sciences come together with business and marketing, it's around that equation. Um, and it's that, how do we like decode the, the cultural meanings that are at play and how do the different yeah. products participate in the rituals that we have? How do they help shape our group think? How do they help us contemplate what it means to be me or to us or whatever it is. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and that's, that's where we're at now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what's amazing to me is, is, is this isn't a criticism. It's just an observation 
we, we don't usually stop to question why we do things. You know, and I, I yeah, do this yeah. to my students all the time. It's a lot of fun. You know, I'll say to them, well, you just did this, you know, uh, you just, uh, you know, you had Valentine's Day. You know, what, what was that about? You know, they have no idea. You know, say, well, okay, you went to a, uh, your your friends getting married and uh, people are standing at the doors to the church and they're throwing rice as the couple walks out. What? You know, you did that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I did that. <laughs> what? They, they have no idea, you know. And so so when you can segue into a discussion about how, you know, rice is a symbol of fertility and the community is trying to say, go out and procreate for the community's sake. Um, Adam, I hope you would have agree with that maybe maybe that's not correct but you know think things like that you know then the the kids start then they really put it together you know and I say to them just be a little more mindful you know every time you, you do something even if it's something as stupid as stopping at a red light ask yourself why did I just stop at a red light right mm-hmm. you know? we actually I actually had Don Norman come to speak to my uh, graduate class in experience for wow. uh, ethnography for experience design yeah and it was yeah it was, it was quite the coup and he was very gracious. And one of the things that he said was, you know, always asking why. It's not about knowing the right answer. It's about finding the right question. Mm-hmm. And it's like yeah. one of the main things. It's like, I'm not going to tell you what's, what you need to know. I'm going to tell you what yeah. you need to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, always, I, I, I like to say that, you know, the managers, they're always interested in the what, but they're never interested in the why. Yeah. yeah. Why do we have... Easter, why do we have bunnies for, uh, for Easter for right. like this religious holiday? Yeah. They go, I don't know. I'm like, well, why don't you know? I mean, we're all traumatized by going to the mall and having this gigantic bunny. <laughs> See, and we had to sit on so this true. bunny's lap. I'm like, you know, and oh, none okay. of us batted you're, an eye. We were, you're, bringing, you're bringing back a bad memory, right? Triggering. This, this podcast <laughs> comes with a trigger warning. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Oh man, that that's a that's a yeah the Easter Bunny warning right there, you know. Not pretty it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, so cool, Michael. This has been um, amazing and great to talk with you. Is is I guess as a as a final wrap up question before we we um, make you answer so many questions from us. What do you what are you hopeful for basically in the next ten to twenty years that we're seeing in marketing? What are you what are you seeing that you're really excited that is changing? I mean, on one level, we're we're, we're getting more real with people, which is great. Um, you know, but what do you what are you hopeful for? Well, you know the. I, what I'm hopeful for is that, you know, there, there are forces in motion now, disruptive forces. We love that word disruption now. There's disruptive forces that have been unleashed. And I don't think any of us know where, where they're going. So what I'm hopeful is that is that the marketers, you know, five or 10 years from now will have the wisdom to put them together in the right way. So, you know, for, ex- for example, automation and AI, you know, unbelievable potential. Right to make our lives so much better and also the potential to turn us into a surveillance state. Um, yep. You know, so it's a question of how do we guide, guide that energy, but you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very optimistic, you know, I, well, I mean, I think there's going to be some big problems and social inequality is going to continue, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that we have to do, I, I'm hopeful that people will be, more receptive to new technologies that force them to change their consumer behaviors, you know? So we, you know, something like say augmented reality, which has amazing potential, but it's so difficult to get people to get out of their, you know, to, to get out of their cocoon and use their phone that way. I'm sure you guys deal with that kind of stuff. 
Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that what you guys are doing is going to be really helpful just to, you know, there, there are so many, you know, there's so many equivalents of the the story about, you know, that, well, you know, the first picture phone was, was displayed at the uh, World's Fair in 1964, which is true, and, and nobody wanted it, you know. So it's all a question of how do we how do we kind of drive both the culture and the technology, you know, at the same time. And, and good luck to you guys. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, I got that. It's I'll be retired. So I- <laughs> <laughs> that's our hashtag power question, right? This. <laughs> uh, um, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. This has been, it's been a great conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Um, we're excited to share, share the book with folks and get the word out. Yeah. I, and, uh, you know, I hope we can keep in touch. I really enjoyed uh, meeting both of you guys. Likewise. Uh, and you, you know, now, now that things are coming back uh, to normal for better or worse, you know, if you ever go to any academic conferences or otherwise, you know, maybe we'll, I, or, or if you're in, or if you're interested in doing and some input about where to go, you know, to meet kindred spirits and so on. Yeah. Uh, let me know. Cause, um, yeah. Do you, um, Adam, do you know, do you know Eric Arnold? I, I don't know Eric Arnold. You know, you don't recognize his name. The, the name sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. the name familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's the other big time anthrop- former anthropologist who is very, he, he's very well known. Uh, he's kind of a character. He's very abrasive. You might want to, you might want to look up some of his, some of his work. He's done some interesting cool. stuff and really brought a tremendous amount of, of value, you know, from, because anthropology is not nearly as well integrated as sociology or psych. Yeah. It's the, it's the slowest of the three children of social sciences. To, yeah. To well, it's just, the you know, if there are fewer people, there are fewer faculty who have a, a PhD in, in anthropology. Um, you know, I can, I can think of three or four. And fewer still that, that are like in industry, right? Um, there's, there's, there's yeah. You know, I probably know three or four in industry as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the good thing is we're trying. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So Um, go out there and, uh, you know, (laughs) today. No, so, but same, same to you. Like we'd love to keep in contact. And and, I mean, the the secret subtitle of this podcast is kindred spirits. So we (laughs) we hunt down folks that we think we, we, we jive with. So, and I have one more question, which is not going to be on the podcast, but the origins of your last name, Michael, I got to know. My last Solomon, Solomon, ethnic origins. Well, you know, I, it's, it's Jewish, but Actually, it, it's actually make, made up yeah. when my um, when my gr- grandfather came over from from Russia. Um, he was a communist, and he was on some kind of list. Oh no, kidding! And his his name was uh, his his name was Solway. Uh, part of the family was Scottish, and he had to change it. He changed it at Ellis Island when they asked him the question. He said uh, Solomon. That's funny. The reason I'm asking is because my last name is Lebanese. And very often when you hear like Michael, Samuels, Peters, Joseph, David, Solomon, it's like these Lebanese Christian last names. And I've actually gotten emails from okay. like, from like Jews for justice. I'm like, no, that, that's the wrong, I'm the wrong David. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm a Lebanese, I'm a Lebanese Christian, David, not to, not to, not yeah. to love David. Yeah. Come to think <laughs> of it. Yeah. Come to think of it. Oh, how like, 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 um, yeah. like Danny Thomas, Lebanese, you know, yeah. Christian last name. So that's why I thought Solomon. I'm like, I 
wonder if I, yeah, it's not, that's not going to be on the podcast. Oh, I'm just yeah. curious. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that, that's amazing. My, my, uh, I've got a new textbook coming out on, on fashion, uh, fashion marketing. And my co-author is, is at, in Beirut at the Lebanese, at the American university. Oh, AUB? Hmm. Yeah. One of the, one, one of the best class, one of the best books I still remember from my PhD was an anthro class called fashion, culture, and identity. Hmm. And I still have this book and I love that book mm. because it just got into, like, it made me think yeah. of fashion and identity and culture, the name of the book, in a completely different way than I had previously ever considered. Yeah. Mm. And it's just a fascinating field, you know, yeah. that I know nothing about clearly because this is how I dress. But fashion as, as, as a thing is just fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, yeah. I mean, I did my dissertation on, you know, on the psychology of fashion and it was all downhill from there. But it's, it, it, yeah, I mean, Fashion is a great intersection of our three fields, you know. I was going to say we, we should probably do a sequel that's just on fashion because that that um, I was contemplating that too while we're talking. Oh yeah, yeah, I no, I, yeah, I do a lot. Of, uh, that's been my primary specialization for years. Um, I, I just published a book last year, um, "Why Fashion Brands Die." Um, look, that looks at some of that stuff. Well, there was just a debate online over what length inseam men's shorts should have. I don't know if you saw <laughs> yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Five I, inches, seven or nine. So yeah, I go I go for the eleven. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, you guys. Well, thanks well, so much. Bye bye. So we want to thank Michael Solomon once again for joining us today to talk about his new book, The New Chameleons. You can find his book, you know, wherever you find books. And we'll have a link to his website and other social media contacts in the show notes below. We'd love to know your thoughts too. Have you had to deal with this if you're working in marketing or have you ever felt that marketing efforts didn't quite match who you were and they kind of felt strange? We're thinking of, you know, rethinking about this um, as experienced designers ourselves and questioning, you know, how do we rethink the way that we are talking with consumers, with customers, and how can we help businesses make connections in deeper ways? We'd love to know your thoughts and hear about them more. So shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or get in touch on our LinkedIn page and we will be sure to hop in the conversation with you. And we also, as always, want to thank you for supporting the podcast and its continued growth, its upward trajectory into the stratosphere, into space, which Jeff Bezos did not reach. We appreciate your contributions and listening, sharing your ideas, and as always, your assistance in helping us bring this to you through your financial contributions, making it possible. You can always support us through Buy Me A Coffee, which our link can be found at our website under donations, or just go to Buy Me A Coffee and look us up and buy us a coffee. You can also share your feedback at feedbackexperiencebydesign.com. We've had a bunch of new people to contact us with show ideas and people are pre on the show and we always appreciate it excited to set those things up and if you want to subscribe and be up to date on all the exd news head over to our website and enter in your email and with that we hope you are all well healthy vaccinated masks and continue to listen to experience by design podcast take care See you soon.